We've been in a book uh, called the book of James in a series that we've entitled Real Faith, Real Life. And we've been looking at this first century letter that James, the stepbrother of Jesus, had written to a group of Christians who were dispersed all over the known world. And he has written a very practical book, what has been called the book of Proverbs in the New Testament, because it's chock full of wisdom and insight how to live life practically as followers of Jesus Christ. This hasn't been an easy book so far, but we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. You see, in this book are more than 60 different imperatives or commands for Christ followers to live out. And some of these commands aren't easy. Some of these commands go against the very fabric and nature of who we are as people. As we're distracted and tempted by the things of this world, we find ourselves having to live counterculturally when we apply the book of James to our lives. Now, we've learned up to this point that the book of James is a book of contrast. On one side of the spectrum, we have worldliness, okay, and all that the world advertises, a life apart from God. And we've seen especially how that brings uh, or comes into focus into our lives, and we allow a worldly wisdom to be adopted in our lives. But then on the other side of the spectrum is godliness, a life that invites God and His Word into our lives, that lives according to the Word of God and does what it says. But to do that, we need to push away, we need to um, kick out in some ways the worldliness in our lives. We're going to see this morning that this worldliness is going to affect not only uh, the day decisions that we'll make for today, but also the decisions and plans we'll make for the future. James is going to address this issue of planning for the future and knowing how we can plan for ourselves with only ourselves in mind, or we can plan with God and His kingdom in mind. Now, James has written this letter to a couple different groups of people. First of all, we know that he wrote this letter to a group of people who said they had a clear and vibrant faith in Jesus Christ, but did nothing to show it. And James calls this a dead faith. And he's saying, listen, you cannot say that you've got to walk with God, you've got a faith in God, and never show any fruit from it. Because if that's the case, then you have no faith at all. So he's talking to that group of people. Then he's talking to a second group of people where I think most of us would land. And that is we we want a vibrant walk with God, we strive for a vibrant walk with God, and for the most part, we're obeying his commands. We're doing what he says but we're tempted and distracted by the things of this world. We find ourselves falling prey, and this is a good word for us to see the example of James, to see the example of his brother Jesus Christ, and to be changed by the hearing and applying of the Word of God and taking that truth and becoming doers of it. Uh, James is speaking to both of these people, and he's going to use the example of one to help teach the other. So the example he's going to use today with regards to planning is an example of a guy who has a dead faith. And he's going to say there's a lot that Christ followers who are striving and working towards a vibrant walk with God and resting in his salvation can learn from the former. And so we want to look at that this morning. And to do so, we're going to look at James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Let's look at the word and uh, let's see what it says. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are but a mist that appears for a little while 
and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live, and we will do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Let me ask God's blessing on our time together. Father God, we come before you and we ask for the blessing on the reading of your word. We ask for your blessing on the teaching of it. We ask your blessing on the receiving and hearing of it. And we ask your blessing on its application. Lord, we need this word because without you we can do nothing. So I pray that you would enlighten our hearts this morning, that you would uh, convict us of, of wrongdoing in this area of planning, and that you would lead and direct, you would guide us to a life of abundance, to a life of blessing when we live a life in obedience to you. Thank you for James's words. Thank you for inspiring them and leading James to speak them. Thank you that these aren't just words of a man, but they come from the very mouth of our God in heaven. We love you for Christ's example that he gives and how we ought to live and pray that we might live in, in its ways as well. God bless you, Lord. We just thank you so much. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. This last week we had the privilege as a family to visit Northern California and we got to do so. We got to visit family and the sites of, of San Francisco and Sacramento, and it was a phenomenal time. And, and as I was flying back, I, I found myself reminiscing and rehearsing some of the things that had gone on in that week. And, and i got to be honest with you, a smile came over me. As I was sitting in that plane, I was thinking, wow, what a great week we experienced the planes were where they needed to be, and the, and the plane ride had zero turbulence. It really was an awesome, awesome ride both there and back. When we got there, uh, the car was ready, and they even gave us an upgrade for the rental car. I mean, that doesn't happen all the time. And then and we moved on, and the hotels were exactly what we expected, exactly what, what we desired, and they were ready. The rooms were prepared for us. Our family was ready to receive us, and they did a phenomenal job of, of caring for us and, and providing for us during that time. We, we always had things to do. We had the greatest of food and the greatest of times of fellowship. And I was sitting back in my undersized Southwest Airlines plane seat, and I felt like, and some of you who are my peers would remember this, I felt like Hannibal Smith from the A-Team show. You see, at the end of each A-Team episode, uh, Hannibal, who was the leader of the A-Team, would light up a cigar and he would say, I love it when a plan comes together. And I was sitting there just kind of in the basking in the afterglow of a vacation that went really, really well. Listen, we made it there, we had fun, we came back, and the family didn't want to kill one another. That's an A-plus in the vacation book, right? And I say that not because I want you to think that all goes well in the Badal home. If you've been around here for any amount of time, you know that's usually not the case. In fact, some years ago we went on a trip and nothing went right. Uh, the kids all got sick. It rained every day of our trip. And I don't mean just a little, I mean inches upon inches of rain. And so everything we did, we were soaking wet in the first five minutes of each and every activity for the day. 
everything seemed to fall apart. Our, our car broke down and took days to repair. It would cost us thousands of dollars as a result. Nothing went right. And I want you to know during that vacation, I had the joy of having my mother-in-law tag along for the ride. And with her watchful eye saying, really, son-in-law, you're not going to be able to do this. Really, son-in-law, you can't make it not rain. Really, son-in-law, you don't know when the car is going to break down. I mean, I love my mother-in-law, but I was really not looking very good in her eyes during that time. Now, here's the amazing thing. In both of those circumstances, in both of those vacations, plans and preparations were made. And yet the outcome was very different. It wasn't like we approached one with diligence and the other one with a lackluster heart or a laxness. No, in both, we prepared and we were ready for the vacation, what we believed was going to be of our dreams. One was, last week was a great week. The other one was a bit of a nightmare. And that is a picture in many ways of our lives. We plan, we prepare, and sometimes everything goes just as we wanted it to. And then in other circumstances, we plan and we prepare and everything falls apart, right? That's the way of life. James tells us this morning that life is going to bring us good times and bad. And what we need to do as Christ followers is recognize that in our planning, we have someone we need to invite into them, and that is God. And we run the risk, we run the temptation, because the world shows us this kind of life all the time, that in our plans and in our preparations, we can leave God out of it. And when we do, we find ourselves on our own. Now, James is going to tell us that by leaving God out of your plans, you take a boastful, arrogant approach to life. And here's why. Because when plans go really, really well, I could uh, tell my family and I could tell all of you the reason why everything went well on our vacation was I did a really, really good job of planning. I had everything all set up, all my ducks were in a row, and Amanda and I did the, the needed things to make sure it would all go well. Look what a great person I am. And then when things don't go well, I have the opportunity to blame everyone else for why the trip didn't go well. I can blame the airline. I can blame the car rental place. I can blame the hotel. I can blame my family for all the things that they did to mess up my plans. But when I invite God into the mix, humility comes. And here's where humility comes. We have a great trip, and I say, wow, everything could have gone wrong. The plane could have been delayed, or even worse, the plane could have gone down. The car couldn't have been there. We could have been given some little compact car that I would never be able to fit into. We could have gone to a hotel and there could have been all kinds of problems and issues. We could have gotten to our family and they could have been ill-prepared for us. There could have been a myriad things that could have gone wrong. And I am so humbled and so thankful that God would enable all the circumstances of life to go as I had hoped and planned they would. But when things don't go that bad, I don't lose my salvation. I don't lose my temper because I recognize I live in a world that's fallen. I live in a world of missed expectations, and I just rest in God. I rely on God and His grace and mercy, and I don't get angry at people because I recognize even in the good, the bad, and even the ugly of life, God works things out for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. James wants us to plan 
accordingly. And he says, as Christ followers, if you want the best laid plans for your life, bring God into the center of it. And he's going to give reasons why God has to be the center of all that we do. And he's going to do so in these uh, four verses that are before us. And so let's look. There are three things I want you to see this morning. And that is, first of all, as we approach this issue of planning, presumption must be avoided. Presumption must be avoided. Now listen, what James is not saying, and I want to make this clear, is that planning any of our days is wrong. He's not saying that at all. Nowhere in the Scriptures is planning ever condemned. James says that there are certain plans that we make that contradict God and His Word. We know that God knows the future. We know that God says we don't know the future, but even though we don't know it, we should still plan accordingly. So never does it say that it's wrong to save for the future. It's never wrong to plan for retirement. It's not a mistake to watch trends in business or to watch the economy and make business decisions or money management decisions in light of those predictors or indicators. But what James is saying is, listen, there's a way for you to put yourself in the driver's seat with regards to your plans and delegate God either to the back seat or outside of the car altogether. And so James is wanting us to answer the question, how do I make good plans that God is behind and that God blesses? How do I order myself in the future in such a way that God will be at the center of every decision that I make? Well, to answer those first, presumption must be avoided. Notice verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Let's stop there. James is taking some real words from someone in the church community who has uttered it to other people what their plans are. And James introduces this guy who calls himself a Christian who says, listen, I've got some plans for the future. And he uses this example as a bad example, not a good one that we should follow. He tells us a story of a first century wheeler and dealer. In this guy's eyes, he's a successful businessman, yet God sees him as a failure. Now what's the difference? The reason is, here's a man driven by profit. He's motivated by materialism. He's guided by greed. But his greatest sin is not that drive for money, but it's that he's living his life without God in it, without any thought of what God may think or do amidst his life. This is what we call the sin of presumption. Now let me define what presumption is. The Bible clearly defines presumption as an arrogant, atheistic living. It's arrogant, atheistic living. Notice the arrogance. James says that this kind of life produces a boasting. What's the boasting? The boasting is, look, I have such control over the circumstances and details of my life that I can look into the future and see 365 days from now exactly what's going to happen. Well, that's arrogance because James is going to say that no one knows what tomorrow will bring. And so by you saying, listen, I know what's going to happen, I know what I'm going to do, how much money I'm going to make, it's an arrogant response that produces boasting. Second, 
It's atheistic. That means it comes from a non-belief in God. James calls this evil. And what you have done in making this statement, what this guy has done is he's erased God from the equation. God does not exist in this man's dreams and plans. In verse 13, there is no recognition nowhere in the English or in the Greek original writing that says anything about God. This guy has no thought of what God is going to do or what God might think of his next 365 days. He knows he's going to go into such and such a town, he's going to trade, and out of his trade he's going to produce a prophet. Now, as we look at this, with no recognition of God, he's got it all planned and figured out. Now notice, this is a sin. Anytime we erase God from the equation, we sin. Because God has purposed and planned that he will be the center of our universe, the center of our galaxies, and the center of our lives. And any time that God does not reside on his throne in the world or in our lives, we sin. Any time we elevate someone to take that place, whether it's someone else or something else or ourselves, we sin. And he says the sin begins with an attitude. It's an arrogant attitude. It's a prideful attitude attitude. Well, where does this attitude come from? We learned this comes from the world. Back in chapter 3, we saw that worldly wisdom is a wisdom that is arrogant. It's a boasting uh, attitude. It's an attitude that thinks higher of yourself than you ought to. It's an attitude that leads you to place yourself on God's throne and to kick God off of it. And the world lives by this attitude. Remember, worldly wisdom is a belief that there is a God and you're him. The world says there is a God, and you're him. And so the world's going to go by your standards. The world's going to go by your plans and your dreams. But godly wisdom says there is a God, and you're not him. And so you're going to live by his plans, and he's going to lead and guide. But this is not the attitude of this man. Now again, I want to reiterate, because it's so very important That as this man looks at his calendar, he's got all his details planned out. He's got his iPhone and all his tablets out. He's looking at his calendar. He's going to say, listen, for the next 365 days, we're going to head into the city. We're going to do this amount of business, and this is going to be the outcome. We're going to sell, and we're going to make lots of money. Now, a couple things we've got to ask is what James is saying is that profit is bad, Many of you know I run a catering business, and my sales rep uh, will come in, and each and every week we'll have this little dance that we do. I'll say, hey, what's such and such running right now price-wise? He'll give me the price. I'll go, oh, my gosh, oh, that's terrible. What a brutal price. And we do this dance every week, okay? And I say, that's the best deal you can give, and he'll always respond, listen, brother, profit's not a bad word. I says, it is when it's on my back, Okay? And yet, i got to recognize that profit isn't a bad word. That profit for a company is a good thing. If, if I, in my catering business, don't produce a profit, I'm not going to have a catering business, right? So i got to be able to produce a profit to be able to stay in business. James is not saying that profit is bad. Is making plans bad. Some of you have some very detailed plans on what you're going to do, what you're looking forward to in the future. Uh, We're planning retirements. We're planning our kids' education. We're planning all manner of things. Is James saying 
That planning is bad? Absolutely not. The Bible tells us, as I said, over and over again, that planning is something that the wise do that prepares us for times of lack or or times of want. So what is his issue? James's issue is that in this man's planning, he's left God out. In his planning, he has left God outside instead of on the throne where he needs to be. This man, in his thinking, sees himself as all-sufficient and all-adequate with no need or thought for God. Notice, this guy's got it all figured out. He's going to go to town for this amount of time. He's so smart and wise that he knows, number one, business is going to be good. He knows that people are going to want what he's selling. He knows that interest rates are going to be low. The economy's going to be up. And he knows that he's going to make riches hand over fist. He's got it all figured out. And God says, through his word, this guy is a fool. You see, he's so wise that he doesn't think there will be any competition. He's so wise to think that his health is going to stay intact for 365 days. He's so wise that he knows that there's no robbers or thieves that were prevalent in that day that were going to steal anything. He's got it all figured out. His greatest problem, listen, isn't his desire for gain. It's his lack of desire for God. And some of us right now are falling prey to that. We're falling prey to the idea that we can make plans, we can make dreams that don't have God at the center. And James says, be careful. Now this type of thinking, notice, involves every aspect of life. We can't not have worldly wisdom and not have it affect all areas of our life because at the forefront, worldliness says, I'm God and God isn't. And when I start from that launching pad, everything is going to change in my life. All of my thinking is going to be skewed as a result of that. And James uses this example of planning as one area, one aspect of one's life that's affected by it. Next week we'll talk about materialism and how worldly wisdom says that we should have all of life when we want it, how we want it. And if someone keeps us from it, then we need to rob and we need to steal until we get it. But James says on this point, planning is an aspect where worldliness can affect the believer. So what's the solution? What's the solution? If it's something we need to avoid, then the solution is, number one, for us to recognize that we are small and God is sovereign. That we are small and God is sovereign. Now, I want you to recognize that, especially as young people, we get this idea that we're a whole lot bigger and better and smarter and wiser than we really are. In my mid-twenties, life was going pretty well. I had a growing business. I was on the leadership of a growing church here at Village. Everything was going really, really well. And I had come to the conclusion in my own thinking, in my own thoughts, that God had in some way supernaturally made me smarter, wiser, and greater than everybody else. Now, it was subtle, and I hope that it didn't come out all that clearly, but that was at the heart at times of what I was dealing with. Wow, is there a problem I can't come up with a solution on? Is there a project that I can't hit a home run on? But then life began to be lived, and you know, when you're 20, you think you can take over the world, right? But then life started to hit, and there were circumstances and times. There were issues within the church that I didn't have an answer for. The economic downturn took place, and there were answers for a business like mine 
when people would call over and over again and say, hey, our business is barely staying afloat, we're going to cancel our company picnic. We're going to cancel this event and cancel that event. There was no amount of wisdom that I had to make an answer for my employees on whether I'd lay them off or keep them on. And then kids come. And if you ever thought that you were wise, have some kids. They'll change everything for you. And kids came and issues and struggles came along with them, not knowing how to answer some of the dilemmas that kids bring into your life. And then Amanda goes through her health scare with the issue of cancer. And I remember sitting in the medical office going, I got no answer for this. I don't know what I'm going to do if my wife's not with me. I don't know what I'm going to do if my wife suffers greatly as a midst of this. I got no answer for this. And life shows you over and over again that you are small and insignificant. And the gospel says, because you're small and insignificant, run to Jesus. Run to Jesus because he has the answer. Run to Jesus because he's wisdom incarnate. Run to Jesus because he is our hope in a fallen world. And as I've gotten older, I've learned I've become smaller. I've learned I've become more finite. I've learned I've become a whole lot unwise than I ever thought I was. And some of us need to learn that. Because when we do that, what will happen is, is as we grow smaller, you know what happens? God grows bigger. God becomes all the more sovereign. It wasn't that he wasn't sovereign in the first place. It wasn't that he wasn't supreme in the first place. We just had a different outlook, a different vantage point. And as I began to make myself less, as, as God began to humble me, God became so much bigger. And I began to realize what Isaiah 55, 8 says, my ways are not your ways. And my thinking is not your thinking. I'm, I surpass it. I am far greater. Last night, Amanda and I and one of our boys was listening to a song, There is no equal to our God. And so we need to recognize that with regards to our plannings. We're small, God is sovereign, and the sooner we learn that, the better off we'll be. The second thing we need to be careful with is what I call the separation syndrome. Now, some of you may say, Tim, I don't struggle with that issue. God's big. God is supreme, but what some of us have done is we've not reduced God in his might and his power and his his infiniteness, we've consigned God in his infiniteness and his power and his majesty to a certain portion of our week. And so we say, God, you are sovereign, God, you are wise, God, you are infinite, but you only are those things on Sunday in my life. You're those things on Sunday, and so I go to church on Sunday, and I worship that, and I hear that preached, and and I I amen that. But then Monday rolls around, and I forget that God is the God not only of Sunday, but Monday through Saturday, and that God needs to be a part of everyday decisions that I make. But we consign God to the spiritual things. God, how do I serve in the church? God, what do I give to you? God, what Bible study should I be a part of? God, what church should I attend? And those are the decisions we bring God into. But what we don't bring God into is the house we're going to buy, the car we're going to purchase, how we're going to raise our kids, the friends we're going to have, how we're going to manage our money, how we're going to manage our time. Those are our decisions. God, you don't need to be in those. Where we're going to vacation, if we should vacation. Those are not my decisions. Uh, I'm sorry, those aren't your decisions, God. They're my decisions. 
And so be careful not to separate the sacred from the secular. There's no such distinction in Scripture. That's why we call this series Real Faith for Real Life. Because James is so practical that it is teaching us that our same faith in the worship center should be found in the workplace. That the same faith we have as as we study the Scriptures in small group should be lived out in our neighborhoods and in our communities. Because our faith is not divided. It's not separated to a Sunday faith and a Monday through Saturday life. But that the same faith we experience on Sunday is the same faith we live out in the mundane decisions of everyday life. We need to be careful with that. So the solution, I'm small, God is sovereign, and I'm not going to separate my decisions to the sacred and the secular. Now, to do that, we must live every moment, as theologians say, as Korem Dio. We sang a song, Before the Throne of God. Korem Dio literally means before the face of God. And what that means is every decision I make, I do so with God watching, and I do so with God in mind. God, what would you have of me in this? God, what would you want me to do in this circumstance? God, what, what is the wise decision as I see this fork or why in the road? Which way seems right to you? Because I know that the way that seems right to me usually will end me in the way of destruction. So I want to go your way, not my own. But to do so, there are some principles that must be affirmed. James says, okay, listen, I want to tell you how really small we are. I want you to see how insignificant you really are. And so verse 14, he goes on this this, uh, tangent that says, listen, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. And he asks this profound question, what is your life? And his answer is, for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You see, God is not all that impressed by us as human beings. God's not all that impressed with you, nor is he of me. And James articulates this, and here's the reason why God's not all that impressed. Because we struggle in this thing of life, number one, because of its complexity. Write that down, because of the complexity of life. We're not ready, we're small, we're insignificant because life is complex to us. The guy in the text has got it all figured out. He knew what he was going to accomplish today. He knew what he was going to accomplish tomorrow. He knew what he was going to accomplish 365 days from now. He's going to buy. He's going to sell. He's going to make a profit. But I want you to recognize within each and every one of these opportunities was an opportunity for great disappointment. It had not dawned on him that what if there's no buyer? Suppose there's a price war of competition and there's no profit for what he's trying to sell. How could he uh, think that he was going to do all of this and everything was going to work out as it would? How could he assume to know the complexities of such an enterprise? You see, we look to the future and we think we've got the future all figured out. We think that we've got it all figured out and we start counting our chickens before they hatch. And, And that kind of sinful attitude can get us into some real trouble. One commentator I was reading shared a remembrance that reminded him of our inability to know the future. He said it this way, 30 years ago, futurists, peering into their crystal ball, predicted that one of the biggest problems for us in this coming generation 
would be, what are we going to do with our abundant spare time? He says, I remember hearing this prediction often. In 1967, there was a Senate testimony subcommittee that claimed that by 1985, people would work only 22 hours a week. Wouldn't that be nice? We would work only 27 hour, uh, oh, I'm sorry, 27 weeks in a year. And we would retire by the age of 38. In 1985, that's what our Senate heard and predicted about our times today. Why? Because technology and our ability to grab a hold of life, we're going to get smarter, we're going to get faster. Therefore, we're going to be bored because we're not going to know what to do with our time. But a recent Harris survey told us the following, that the amount of leisure time enjoyed by the average American has decreased 37% since 1973. We've got less time to do what we want. Over that same period, the average work week, including commuting, has jumped up from 41 hours to nearly 47 hours. We're not working less, we're working more. You see, no matter how hard we try, we never can comprehend the complexity that life of tomorrow might bring. All this technology we have, we have enough technology on our phones that could have landed a man on the moon. You know that, right? And yet, we find ourselves with less time to do what we really want to do because life today is more complex than it was 40 years ago. You see, life is never cut and dry. It's complicated. And James says, stop planning, thinking you've got it all figured out because you don't. And neither do I. Notice the complexity of life. How about the uncertainty of life? The uncertainty of life. James goes on, he says, you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. He asks the question, what is your life? He says, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. You don't have an idea. None of us know what next week is going to look like. This last week, we've learned a lot that we didn't know the week before. Now, as people, we're pretty impressive, right? We split atoms, We build amazing skyscrapers. Our family uh, was on the Golden Gate Bridge, a mile and a half long bridge, tons upon tons upon tons of iron suspended by cables over the Pacific Ocean. And we marveled at this. What a feat of masterful engineering. We, We marvel at what we do in the operating rooms. We create incredible technology, things that we never could have dreamed of before now are in our fingertips. We've landed men on the moon, but here's the thing that we're terrible at. We don't know the future. We don't know the future. Jesus articulated, and his stepbrother repeats it, no one knows what a day might bring. There's uncertainty. We're not ready for the diagnosis that may be coming. We're not ready for the pink slip that may be coming. We're unaware of the unforeseen repair the bad news a spouse may bring. Think of it this way, just to put it into perspective. This week alone, more than a 1,000 people in our country will get in their cars, say goodbye to their families, only to never return because they'll die in a car accident. A 1,000 people this week. Life is uncertain. Notice, 48,000 people will not die in a car accident but will be severely injured that will impact their life dramatically because of a car accident. Think of it this way, 31,000 people will get a diagnosis of cancer in the next seven days. You say, how do you know that? Because 31,000 got diagnosis last 
week. 17,000 marriages will end in divorce this week. Now I want you to know these thousands upon thousands of people went into the week not thinking that this terrible thing was going to happen. This is the uncertainty of life. Now we've seen it as a nation. September 11th, we saw the uncertainty that comes when we live in a world of enemies. Uncertain of what tomorrow will bring. We saw it in the year 2008 and 2009 when we thought our houses were only going to continue to make money, that our 401ks were only going to continue to grow, that we were going to make money all the time. And 2008, 2009 told us that there is no certainty in our finances. Life is uncertain. No one knows what tomorrow might bring. So don't plan like you do. James says don't plan like that because that kind of certainty in life is ungodly. Only God knows what will come tomorrow. Finally, James says the brevity of life. And he uses this metaphor that he says your life is a mist that appears for a little while. Just a fraction of a time. That phrase little while or little time in the Greek literally is minuscule. You're a blip on the screen. You're here today and you're gone tomorrow. And the brevity of life is seen in the Scriptures over and over again. In fact, in the Bible there are 18 different metaphors that express the brevity and uncertainty of our lives. In one book alone, the book of Job, he shares it about five or six times. Let me share some of these passages with you. Job 7, 7. He says, oh, remember that my life is but a breath. In Job 7, 9, as a cloud disappears and vanishes away, so he who goes down to the grave does not come up. Job 8, 9, for we are born yesterday and we know nothing because our days on the earth are a passing shadow. Job 9, 25 and 26, now my days are swifter than a runner. They flee away, they see no good. They pass by like swift ships, like an eagle swooping to its prey. Job 14, 1 and 2, man who is born of a woman is of a few days and full of trouble. He comes forth like a flower and fades away. He flees like a shadow and does not continue. I found a poem this week called Time Paces, and it captured the way that life slips away that the scriptures do. It said the following, when I was a child, I laughed and wept and time crept. Isn't that true? Time goes slow when we're kids. When as a youth I waxed even bolder and I learned that time walked on. When I was a full-grown man, time ran. When older still I grew, I learned that time flew. Soon I shall find in passing on that my time is gone. You see, time moves faster than we want it to. I learned this truth this last week. We were in San Francisco, as I shared, and it's not the first time my family's been to San Francisco. We have family in Sacramento, and so we fly into the San Francisco area, and we take in the sights and the beauty of that incredible city. And uh, 13 years ago, my wife and I and our youngest son, Noah, uh, went with our family to, and I never know how to pronounce this, uh, Girardelli, Girardelli Square, where the chocolate factory is and all of that, and we enjoy some ice cream and chocolate. And 13 years ago, we took a picture in front of a fountain in that square, and this is what it looked like. If you ever had a question of how good looking I was, there it is. 
Okay? Man has always been beautiful, but who's that little guy? That's our firstborn son, Noah, a year and a half old. And we were enjoying all the sights and sounds of, of San Francisco in a lot of ways. As a young man there in my mid to late 20s, I'm thinking, man, especially at that time, this is never going to end. This kid's never going to grow up. These late nights and these struggles, it's never going to, man, this life is going slow. And, and, I, and I thought, man, things are moving. And then 13 years later, we find ourselves in front of the same fountain. And I look and I say, where did the time go? I know where the pie went. <laughs> Amanda still looks beautiful. But Noah, and I told him I was going to share this, that kid isn't a little kid anymore. And I know for parents, we know this, where did those 13 years go? It's like a blip, a snap of the fingers. Amanda and I were lamenting, we've got maybe four family vacations left with the whole family before Noah heads off to school and, and goes on to adult life. Life's going fast. And I want you to know that in the brevity and the complexity and the uncertainty of life, don't make plans apart from God. That's James's point. Invite God and ask God and, and bring God into the center of it. Don't ever make a plan without Him being a part of it. Now, how do we do that? There's some practices we have to activate. How do we make God our center? How do we make God it? In rapid fire, I'm going to nail these things just one very quickly after another, and they don't need to be expounded upon. They should stand by themselves. But the first thing we need to do is we need to initiate repentance. Far too many of us, including the one preaching this morning, has made too many plans, has had too many business plans, and too many church plans, and too many family plans that haven't had God at the center of it. And sadly, I've experienced the heartbreak when my plans don't work out. But one thing I need to stop and do after a passage like this is I need to say, God, I know you're supposed to be center. God, I know you're to be the one to direct me. God, I know I should be more patient and wait on you. But I haven't. And for that, I confess my sin before you. And some of us need to follow the suit of the pastor and, then, and, and say, listen, I've done it wrong. And God, I'm sorry. God, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Some of you have never bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, and you've lived your life this way, and James is proclaiming there's a different way to live. God at the center, God moving and directing in your life, and you need to say, God, I'm sorry, I've gone my own way, and by your grace and by your mercy, you've shown me a new way, and I want to live in that. I want to follow that leading. Some of us need to stop this morning, and we need to repent. Second, we need to investigate. Investigate what? The sources of godly counsel and godly wisdom. How are we to make plans? How are we to uh, know which way to go? We've got a lot of plans as a people, a lot of plans as families, a lot of plans as a church. How do we know which way is wise? We do a couple things. Number one, we go to the Scriptures. The Scriptures is the first source of counsel. And we go to the Scriptures and we say, God, what does your word have to say? And we don't separate, God, what does your word have to say on the spiritual things and not the temporal life things? No, God, what does your word have to say about all manners of life? What way I should go? 
the Bible is told to be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We're walking the path of life. We have to make decisions, and we need a lamp to guide us and direct us every step of the way. Number two, we need to seek a multiplicity of counselors. The Bible says that wisdom is found when we seek out multiple counselors, people that know the Word, people that, that, that know the will and plans of God. And so we take our issue, our question, our decision, and we don't presume that we're the only one that, that knows maybe what to do. I've made a rule that any major decision, and I've put a major decision at $500 or more, okay, that I seek uh, the advice of other people. And I say, listen, because I don't want to presume that I know how to spend my money. And so I'll pull in people. And I'll say, hey, what do you think about this? Is this wise? And they'll ask questions because they're not, they're not all excited like I am about the particular purchase. And so I, they're not all worked up. and say, you know what? Have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? And I've always, listen, I've always been thankful when I've done that. And I'm usually disappointed when I don't. And so seek godly counsel. And ask others how maybe they might see the Word of God being played out in our lives. Number three, you got to pray. If there's any place that we lack wisdom, as James 1.5 says, it's in our decision-making for the future. We don't have a clue of what tomorrow's going to bring, and so we lack wisdom in that. And God says, if you lack wisdom, come to me because I will give you wisdom without finding fault. And some of us need to be praying, God... I don't know what to do. I've got two really great opportunities here, and I don't know what to do. What's your will and and what's your plan? And you need to make a decision. But you need to make a decision by giving God time to answer your prayer. Seek the Scriptures. Seek godly counsel in the company of others. And pray. Ask God for wisdom. That's how we make plans. Number three, invite God into your plans. Verse 15 He says the following, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now this isn't supposed to be a cliche. Uh, Some of our people were having fun after the first service and uh, one lady came out and says, if the Lord wills, I'll take a step. If the Lord wills, I'll take another. If the Lord wills, I'll take another. That's not what they're saying. I'm like, okay, obviously you didn't hear what I was saying. What it is, is it's a pattern of life. What it is is that we're middle management and we don't move a step forward without asking God, God, I want you to be in my decisions. And so there should be this overall feeling, this overall position in your life. God, I don't want to do anything that's outside of your will or plan, so lead me and guide me. And so then as I'm guided and led in those things and live according to the principles of Scripture and follow the example of Jesus, I'm living out the will and plans of God. But when a major decision comes, when I'm really concerned about an issue, that I stop and say, Lord, I need you in this. God, I'm not going to move one step until you uh, show me very clearly in the direction I need to go. That will save us a whole lot of heartache and pain. Invite God into our plans. That means inviting God into our jobs, inviting God into our parenting, inviting God into our moving decisions, into home purchases, car selections, grocery trips, vacations, money and time management. The sky's the limit on what we should invite God into. Number three, imitate the example of Christ. Now this isn't per se in the book of James, but I couldn't keep it out. The life of Christ Here on earth is a picture of Jesus never going outside of the will and plan of God. 
And so he says, listen, I'm here to do the will of my Father. I'm here to do it. And he would tell people, I'm not here to do this, but I'm here to do that. Why? Because God has a plan for me. My Father in heaven has a unique plan for me, and I'm going to live it out. And we need to live that kind of plan out. Not my will, as Jesus says in the garden, but your will be done. Not my plans, God. Even though I may not like your plans, I'm going to live according to them because it's better to live according to the plans that you have for me than to live them apart from you. Imitate the example that Christ gives. Finally, invest more in heaven than on earth. Notice verse 17. Uh, When we know what is right and we fail to do it, we sin. Here the idea is, is what's the right thing? Well, the Bible's clear. We're to be doers and hearers of the word and doers of it. We are told by Jesus that we are to seek the kingdom of God. We are told that the greatest commandment is to love God and love our neighbors. We know the right thing to do. And what that means is investing more in heaven's agenda than our own. We have an example in the beginning of this text of a man's agenda, not God's. And some of us are living by our agenda, not God's agenda. God wants us to seek his life. God wants us to seek his kingdom and his righteousness instead of seeking things for ourselves. When we know the right thing to do and don't do it, we call that the sin of omission. It's still a sin. And amidst that, God wants to give us wisdom. Wisdom to plan. Wisdom to approach decisions differently. Wisdom not only for today, but for the rest of our tomorrows. So my prayer is that you would invite him into your plans. That you would invite him into your decisions. And accept the outcomes from a God who loves you and who has a plan for you and your life. What is our life? We're but a mist, a vapor. And God, by his grace, has given us his wisdom and his plans that we can live according to and find blessing and protection all the days of our lives.